welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, August 6th, and we're breaking down the Virgin Galactic IPO. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by a telephone by Motley Fool contributor Luis Sanchez. How's it going, Luis? Hey, happy to be here. That's yeah, great to have you. You've been with The Fool since uh, earlier in 2019. This is your first appearance on the podcast. For folks who might not have uh, you know, read any of your writing, and obviously nobody's heard you on the podcast, why don't you kind of introduce our listeners, kind of what's your background and how you came to The Fool? So, yeah, Nick, I've, I've been contributing to uh, The Motley Fool since about February of this year. Uh, I have a very tra- uh, traditional finance background in that I went to school for finance, got my undergraduate degree in finance and accounting. I spent time working in investment banking at, some, at two of the largest banks. And I've also worked at hedge funds. When when I'm not writing for uh, the Motley Fool, I also work as a financial advisor, primarily working with individuals. And as far as investing, I'm most interested in corporate actions and long-term growth plays, which is what basically what got me into researching the space industry. Yeah, and that's what we're going to talk about today. First off, uh, you know, you've talked about investing in corporate actions and those sorts of things. One of the, I guess, a type of corporate action touches this IPO we're going to talk about today, which is an IPO via a special purpose acquisition company, commonly uh, shortened to a SPAC. Uh, for folks who aren't familiar with the SPAC IPO process, can you kind of give us a high level overview of, of how it differs from a regular IPO and what investors should know about this process? SPACs are interesting. They're, they're sort of like an IPO, but not really. They're actually what's known as a reverse merger in that there's an already public blank check company, and it merges with a private company, which effectively takes it public. So in a more traditional IPO progress process, there's a, a more rigorous regulatory and audit process where the the company that wants to go public puts together a prospectus. They submit it to the Securities and Exchange Commission, and the SEC will will approve it or give them comments. And then investment bankers come in. They take a close look at the company that wants to go public, but and before they before they uh, basically pitch the company to their investor base and determine what what price the IPO should should be priced at. On the other hand, a SPAC IPO can kind of circumvent this process. The regulatory oversight is much, much lighter. And, and there's no, uh, I guess, what you would refer to as like a, a go big or go home moment where there's this big public IPO offering date. So just kind of given the lighter, the lighter regulatory process, some, some people view the, the SPAC process as a little bit of a red flag. And there's definitely some evidence to show that quite a few SPACs haven't performed all that well. But the flip side of that is SPACs tend to go public at a discount, discounted valuation to more traditional IPOs. And the other interesting thing is you don't really have to wait for the, for the IPO to close. You can actually invest in a SPAC before any deal is announced at all. Including the uh, the SPAC that we're going to be talking about today, right? Exactly. So a SPAC will be a company that that will sit on the market with, like you said, a blank check company with the intent at some point uh, to acquire to acquire a company. And when that happens, you'll see that the I, the SPAC IPO, like like we're uh, discussing today with Virgin Galactic, and 
as you mentioned, SPACs have been popular in the past, but uh, you know, following the financial crisis, they really slowed down significantly. But last year, we really saw a big uptick in SPACs. In 2018, we had the most SPACs go public in any year since 2007, raising more than $10 billion in capital. And these are companies that folks might be familiar with. Hostess went public via SPAC, Chuck E. Cheese. But the one we're talking about today is Virgin Galactic. Uh, Back at the beginning of July, July 9th, Virgin Galactic announced plans to go public via a deal with Social Capita Capital, uh, Hito Sophia Holdings Corp., which is a SPAC company created by Social Capital CEO Chamath Palhapitiya. And as part of the deal, Social Capital will invest $800 million for a 49% stake in Virgin Galactic with an implied valuation of $1.5 billion. Uh, obviously, you know, we, as we mentioned, Virgin Galactic is a space company, but for folks who, who may not be as familiar with this company, can you give us kind of a high-level overview of, of what's the history of this business and, and what services do they provide uh, to their customers? So, uh, Virgin Galactic was actually founded by uh, Richard Branson, and it was founded back in 2004, and over the past 15 years or so, it's invested over a billion dollars into making human space flight safe. So they're definitely oriented at trying to commercialize human space trans human space transport, but they're also they also have a long term aim at disrupting long haul travel in general. Um, so being point to point travel between two different locations. The opportunity that they're focusing on right now is actually space tourism, and they have a plan to start sending uh, paid tourists into space in 2020. And that, you know, that's kind of uh, an odd concept. It's definitely something new, but the idea is that you know, insanely rich people might be willing to pay about $250,000 for a ticket, which which grants them about a four-day four space tourism experience, which includes um, a couple days of training, uh, a full dress rehearsal, and then it culminates in a, a flight, which sends them into space for about 90 minutes. Yeah, so it's a really, they're marketing a full space tourism experience to the ultra wealthy folks. You know, at, when you look at, uh, at the, the investor presentation of this company, they compare the market for this to something like ultra luxury private jets or, or yachts, those sorts of things that can cost in the realm of hundreds of thousands, uh, you know, per reservation. Uh, you know, as someone myself, you know, I just got back from Orlando last week. I don't even like roller coasters, so going to space on a on a rocket ship is a little bit out there for me. How big uh, does the company think this market can be, and what could it grow to over time, uh, assuming everything works out? Yeah, um, it's definitely a novel idea, and you almost kind of have to take yourself out of your own personal experience to understand the typical consumer. Um, you know, in, in there, they put out this investor presentation, which described the investment thesis, which basically says that people, you know, insanely rich people, people who might have wealth upwards of 10, 20, 50, hundred million dollars, they're willing to pay. And they often do pay hundreds of thousands of dollars just to have a, a single vacation. And that's about what it costs to charter a yacht or rent a private island or fly private around the world. Um, and, you know, there's also some evidence that maybe there's something about the human spirit that 
is interested in having these unique physical accomplishments. I mean, right now we're seeing record people climbing Mount Everest and, you know, there's a lot of people also interested in things like ultra marathons, but, um, you know, the, the thing, so the, there is this existential question of, is this, is this something that people are interested in? And it's certainly what, what I was wondering, but the company has disclosed that they've already taken about 600 reservations and collected over $80 million in deposits against these reservations. And apparently the company hasn't even been um, actively selling this package. They, they, paused, they paused selling efforts about five years ago, and, and they claim to have thousands of leads for additional future customers. So there apparently is demand for this. And how large could this market be? Well, there's something like 2 million people in the world with a net worth greater than $10 million. And the company claims that they just need to fly about 1,000 people per year to, to have a viable business. So 1,000 people is less than a tenth of a percent of the 2 million people who could potentially afford it. You know, it's definitely within, within the realm of the possible. And then, of course, over the longer term, the, the company is, might be able to lower the cost through better technology or some kinds of uh, efficiencies. And to the extent that they're able to lower the ticket prices, they, they are interested in bringing this space tourism experience to an even wider audience. Yeah, certainly, you know, as the price comes down, that addressable market really grows. Even at that current, uh, uh, you know, people with a net worth greater than $10 million, I mean, if they hit that 1,000 uh, space flights per year to become viable, that's a massive growth uh, in space flights, you know, just for humanity. Uh, if you look at Virgin Galactic's investor presentation, they call out only 571 people have ever been to space. So if you're talking about 1,000 uh, every year, Obviously, that that's a really significant growth. Uh, Richard Branson thinks uh, that they can they can decrease prices over time. Uh, you know, obviously, this is a brand new market, and Virgin gets some inherent advantages as a first mover. But when you take a look at the assets that the company is invested in and, and how it stands, uh, what do you think are their key advantages moving forward relative to maybe new entrants who might come into this market? Yeah, great question. I think the biggest advantage that the company has is just the fact that they got started 15 years ago just putting together rocket ships with seemingly without any interest in immediately commercializing the opportunity. They were just really interested in, in, in seeing if this could work. And, you know, lo and behold, 15, 20 years later, there might actually be a business here. So they have this you know, potentially multi-decade head start against any potential competition. And as a result, they have a lot of, a lot of intellectual property that's probably worth a lot. And, you know, they're, they're, ver they're vertically integrated. So they're in there, they're actually designing and manufacturing their own rocket ships, which, you know, they could eventually build spaceships for other companies. Um, something kind of interesting is that They've actually received the first FAA approval for commercial space travel. So obviously that's critical for uh, sending humans on, on uh, commercial vehicles. And they got that space approval from the FAA 
essentially through extensive testing, both with humans and without humans, um, and to prove that to prove that this whole thing is safe. And then the last interesting thing that I would point out is they have this beautiful spaceport that they've built in Nevada, actually in partnership with the state of Nevada. And this spaceport essentially has everything they need in terms of luxury accommodations and air, airfield space, as well as train facilities. It has everything they need to basically get this business going. Yeah, so it's New Mexico is as a is location of spaceport. Just just for for clarity, yeah, spaceport America. The other the other thing I, I found interesting about that is that New Mexico, the state, f- funded all of the upfront development costs of the spaceport in exchange for five million dollars in annual rent from the company. So you, you've seen this company build up uh, this incredible amount of of assets as well as in the first commercially developed uh, a spaceport in the world. Uh, and the company still has zero debt. Uh, they've, they've put signed some deals that uh, they think can can continue to expand abroad. They signed a deal with Italy back in 2018, a deal uh, with the UAE in March 2019. So there's some opportunities. They have these existing assets in the USA as well as the opportunity to expand abroad when it comes to their their spaceport uh, facility. Another, uh, when you talk to talk about safety and, and their development strategy. Uh, versus some some of the other rocket companies folks might be familiar with, SpaceX uh, or Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos's company. Uh, Virgin uses a, a, a horizontal takeoff and landing approach, so it's you, you take off uh, like like a normal plane, towed by a a, a mothership, and then the the rocket uh, will, will go from there. And they also land horizontally. So there's an argument to be made that there's a little bit of familiarity with folks to that process. Uh, of air travel that maybe will add a, a comfortability uh, folks don't enjoy otherwise. So, so when you take all these advantage uh, advantages, Luis, you know both the physical assets in New Mexico and abroad, as well as you know the IP they have for developing over over 15 years, they, there there is some clear uh, advantages and a clear lead uh, uh, for this company. When you look at the financials uh, of the company, though, do you see a clear path to profitability to leverage those advantages and then create shareholder value over the long term? So real quick, I think you actually touched on some a really interesting point in regards to governments being willing to offer grants and subsidies to companies in the space industry, and that's actually something that you see across across the board in uh, the defense contracting industry as well. And as it relates to um, the company's potential financial outlook. Um, Governments actually are, are involved in subsidizing R and D, and it could it's actually quite materially helpful in reducing capital expenditures, and can make a business like Virgin Galactic uh, a lot more capital light than people would assume. In in regards to the specific financial outlook, this is actually one of the one of the things that I was most surprised by, which is. Virgin Galactic articulates a very clear path to profitability within the next three or four years. And it kind of all starts with the fact that each plane, each plane carrying about five passengers, um, can deliver a unit economic uh, profit margin of about 65%. So if you think about that, each person is paying about 250 grand to get on the flight. 
each flight can carry about five people. So you're looking at 1.3 million in revenue. And there's a couple hundred thousand dollars in there of fuel costs, uh, lodging costs, insurance, et cetera. And at least on the per flight level, they're, the company's projecting over 800 grand in net profit per flight. Now, you know, of course, there's going to be um, corporate overhead. The company still has to pay for its staff, um, its marketing budget, its, to the extent that it has to, to pay for R&D. So it's going to need to have some scale as a company to hit profitability. And the company estimates that with, by 2023, I believe, they can be EBITDA profitable. And if they're able to hit something like 270 flights carrying 1,500 people or so. Um, so, so then that just comes, it just, it kind of comes down to the question of, you know, if the company hits its financial targets, then, you know, the stock could actually look pretty cheap. Um, according to the company's targets, by 2023, this thing at, at the current valuation implied by the, the, the IPO deal, it might be trading for five and a half times 2023 EBITDA, which really is pretty, pretty cheap for a company that isn't going to be facing a lot of competitive pressure. It's probably not going to be all that cyclical. But, you know, obviously, um, we're talking about if that happens and you're under you're underwriting a lot of risk because it doesn't take a rocket scientist to to figure out that uh, space travel is pretty complicated. Right. It's it's a really a, an addressable market question, I, I think, to me, is is how many people are going to be willing to to take to fly on this on this aircraft. And then as well, there's a question. So right now you're looking at folks who are early adopters. No one has ever engaged in any kind of recreational space travel. So these are the folks who uh, traditionally would be the most comfortable with risk, the most comfortable with being the first to do something. You could easily see that addressable market start to skew up in a really significant way as things are proven to be safe and it becomes more generally accepted. However, on the other side, you know, if one of these things blows up and if someone is is injured, you could quickly see that the addressable market diminish diminish very mm-hmm. quickly. So it's something to be seen. But as, as you say, if the, the company's projections pan out, there is a path to very, very rapid growth and something that could, could easily justify the valuation that they're coming at today. We'll just have to see mm-hmm. how things progress. I, I think when we talk about these commercial space companies, the big three uh, for sure right now, I think, are Virgin Galactic, SpaceX, and Blue Origin. There's also United Launch Alliance. That's a, a partnership uh, between uh, two other, two major uh, U.S. defense contractors, but the, the, the three big ones right now are SpaceX, Blue Origin, and Virgin Galactic. When you compare what Virgin Galactic is doing with this focus on recreational space travel and, via space planes, uh, how does that compare and contrast to what we're seeing from those other uh, big two space companies, SpaceX and Blue Origin? You know, the landscape of the future space industry is pretty interesting. For some reason, um, a lot of these companies tend to be started by outspoken billionaires. 
and aren't really traditionally bat companies. Although, as you mentioned, there are a couple of companies like the United Launch Alliance that might be a little bit more traditional. Um, but it, it's funny. You have to think, why, why are so many billionaires starting space companies? And it's probably because uh, starting a space company is something like the ultimate vanity project. Um, where, you know, I don't think, as, as mentioned, I don't think that when Jeff Bezos started Blue Origin or, or when Richard Branson started Virgin Galactic, they were primarily interested in making a ton of money. I think they just wanted to see if they could build a spaceship. Right. <laughs> space is cool. And they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, grown up little kids, I guess, you know, that want to want to go to space, but it, there really has been proven out to be a market. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think when you're talking about the 800-pound gorilla in the room, I think you're really talking about SpaceX, which is the, uh, the venture backed by Elon Musk. And I say that it's the 800-pound gorilla because it, it has a large valuation by leaps and bounds. Uh, it was reported that it just did a private funding round employing uh, a valuation over $30 billion. And, you know, the, the company has secured a bunch of lucrative government and commercial contracts, mostly to launch satellites, but they've really done a good job with their PR. You know, you may be familiar with some of the videos of them launching and landing their reusable rockets on platforms in the sea. And Elon Musk has, has a longer-term ambition of sending humans to Mars. <laughs> But for now, you know, he's, he seems to be really focused on the uh, commercial opportunity to use heavy lift rockets to uh, send satellites into orbit. And there's definitely a lot of demand for that. Um, you know, next, I, I think Blue Origin is also pretty interesting. Blue Origin is the, the company backed by the Amazon founder and CEO, Jeff Bezos. And Blue Origin's kind of taken this middle path somewhere between Virgin Galactic and SpaceX in that it's simultaneously working on space tourism and commercial launches for satellites. Um, although maybe because it's, it's trying to, to accomplish a little bit more, I'd argue that it's a, it's a little bit behind its rivals in the sense that, you know, Virgin Galactic, as we mentioned, is getting ready to, to, to commercialize space tourism by 2020. Whereas uh, Blue Origin, they have they have some something in development, but it hasn't been tested with humans yet. It certainly doesn't have FAA commercial space a uh, commercial space license, and it hasn't even started set, uh, selling reservations or tickets. So that's kind of TBD. On the other hand, Blue Origin also has a different class of rockets that it's developed for sending satellites into space. And, you know, that, that, that business hasn't, hasn't really started, uh, hasn't really started collecting revenue yet either, although it has signed some pretty lucrative deals for the future. So, you know, I would say that Blue Origin really isn't in any particular kind of hurry. It's definitely well-backed. Jeff Bezos has been selling about a billion dollars of Amazon stock every year to fund the venture. And it's hard to argue that Blue Origin hasn't made incredible progress just given, you know, the technology that it's developed so far. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah, and and so if you look at uh, Virgin Galactic as compared to Blue Origin and SpaceX, Virgin Galactic is much more of a pure play on the recreational space travel industry versus the other two. Uh, SpaceX has you know talked about sending a Japanese billionaire around the moon, but that that is a, a long term project. I believe twenty twenty three is their target. There, Blue Origin uh, has talked about putting folks into space, but that'll be a little bit different space flight than Virgin, Galact- Virgin Galactic has. It's a vertical takeoff vehicle, uh, more similar to the Apollo style rockets versus the uh, the Virgin Galactic, which is a horizontal takeoff and landing space plane vehicle. The Blue Origin recreational space flight is projected to be around 11 minutes versus the Virgin Galactic is projected to be around 90 minutes. But Virgin Galactic, as compared to the other two, doesn't have nearly the same exposure when it comes to commercial launches of satellites. Part of that is just the the nature of that horizontal takeoff and landing being towed by a mothership up to 45,000 feet. Uh, it just limits some of the the amount of weight that you can carry. So if you're going to invest in Virgin Galactic relative, I mean, these other two aren't publicly investable now, but relative to these other two, Virgin Galactic is much more of a pure play on recreational space travel. And you really have to believe that that market is going to grow in a meaningful way in the coming years. Whereas the others, you, you could fall back on, on the satellite launches. We've talked about these low Earth orbit uh, internet uh, projects that are that are becoming more and more popular. There's a little bit broader addressable market for the other two relative to Virgin Galactic. Now, when you look at this uh, this, this spec, uh, the, the deal is expected to be finalized later this year. Uh, the the social capital spec is currently trading on the market as IPOA. Whether you want to buy, you know the the um, this back today, or whether you're looking at investing in in Virgin Galactic moving forward once the deal is closed, as an investor, what what will you, will you be paying attention to when you think about Virgin Galactic as an investment, and and what are the important metrics you'll be you'll be watching to decide whether this is something that should you know have some real capital invested in it? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm certainly intrigued by the company and the industry. There, there definitely appears to be something here. Um, not, you know, not sure if it's uh, necessarily tourism, if that, if that's going to be the big market. But, and I'm certainly not quite there yet on investing in it. But there's definitely some things to like about it. Uh, just in general, one of the things I think is is interesting is everyone that I've spoken to about this idea is just extremely skeptical of just the premise. And it seems like people don't even want to take it seriously. And I haven't really met anyone who's actually dug in and and researched the facts. But, you know, if the company does what it says it'll do, I think the stock could do really well. Um, And, you know, there is definitely some, some circumstantial evidence that this is a real business. I mean, they've, they've received government licenses. They do have a backlog. They've had some good PR, um, but you know, certainly there, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of things that that need to go right for for this to work as an investment. Some of the things that I'll be watching are, um, you know, right now the company has been a little vague about when its first commercial flights are going to take place. They've alluded to a start sometime in the first half of 2020. And, you know, it'd just be great to see something a little bit more definitive put on the calendar. 
or maybe even wait and see, just wait until after a couple of, uh, of these flights carrying paying customers have, have gone and come back. Um, just, just, just as a proof point, <laughs> um, you know, there's definitely a risk here that because it's such a, a new idea, it's such a complicated industry, you know, it took 15 years just to put together the technology that there, there could be delays. Um, things get pushed back due to uh, technical issues or other kinds of issues that are hard to foresee. And, you know, this investment becomes less appealing if the timeline is shifted back a few years. Um, another thing that I think is really important to pay attention to is the backlog to the extent that the company continues to report it. I think the backlog is going to be the best indicator of long-term demand for this kind of thing. And it was really helpful to, for, for us to see that the company has disclosed that there's already 600 reservations and 80 million in deposits. You know, will more people be interested in space tourism? <laughs> Who knows? But the backlog is probably going to be your best indicator. Um, the last thing that I, I'd probably pay attention to is the average ticket prices. And the reason I say that is because the, the company indicated that some of its initial reservations actually came in at, at a discount. And, you know, perhaps it's because of, of, uh, of selling to early adopters or, you know, who knows exactly why. But the bottom line is just that the economics of, the, of this business are going to be tough to justify if Virgin Galactic can't maintain its pricing. And, and you know, there could be, if, if demand is just a little bit softer than they're advertising right now, it wouldn't be crazy to see them discounting the price, which also would make the investment a lot less appealing. Yeah, I think um, the, re- the mm-hmm. recurring theme from all of those there is is how big is demand going to be and when can they start delivering the product. So when you look at the backlog, if you start to see that backlog start to slide down, that could be evidence of, hey, there, there's a small group of people who are super interested in this, but it's just that. It's a, it's a small group of people. Likewise, if you see average ticket prices start to fall, uh, the folks in that higher-end market, there's fewer of those who are willing to pay that price. So uh, we'll just have to see how big the market is going to be and how big that demand is going to be. If the numbers that management has put out they're proved to be true, uh, the demand is robust enough to support this business and to justify a valuation that continues up over time. You know, a- a- as you mentioned, I-, I would, I too would like to see a couple of these flights take place and land safely uh, before I'd want to really consider um, investing in the company. Like I said earlier, if there's some sort of accident, you could really see how that shrinks the addressable market. But if you have uh, several safe space flights take take place, you could really see. Folks get excited about uh, engaging in you know uh, engaging in space tourism, and even more demand swoop in. So I think those early days are, are going to be very important. Uh, any last yeah. thoughts, Luis, before we kind of uh, before we send it home? Yeah, I mean, just on that final note, I think that one thing that this crop of space companies and not just Virgin Galactic have in common is that they they seem to be very masterful when it comes to PR. So to the extent that they are successful in sending a few missions to space. 
they could I could definitely see them drumming up excitement in in terms of PR. And, you know, that could also have an impact on the stock price and how people perceive the uh, the company. Yeah, it will be something to follow uh, for sure. Something very exciting. I mean, a market that, that has not existed, like we said before, there have only been 571 people who have ever gone to space, and this company is projecting to do over 1,000 each year. So, really exciting opportunity. We'll continue to follow it. And, uh, Luis, hope to have you on again soon. Thanks so much. Great. Thank you, Nick. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Luis Sanchez, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on!